Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So how are you guys doing tonight? Hi, Justin. We are doing awesome. Thank you for asking. Yeah, we're doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Uh, before we get started, I need to wish a happy anniversary to Olivia Hunt and her husband, Jeff. All right. Go ahead and introduce yourselves. All right. Hello, I'm Caitlin. I am one of the hosts of True North True Crime, a Canadian podcast that focuses on missing people and victims of violent crime in Canada. And my co-host... Oh, hi, everybody. I'm Graham. I'm Caitlin's husband. And uh, we started the podcast in 2020 when many, many people started podcasts. And uh, three years later, we're still here. Mm -hmm. So Aaron and I had done a live stream probably a couple months ago now. And we asked our listeners, what do you want to hear more from us? What do you want us to cover? And the number one thing that they said was murdered and missing indigenous women. And when I heard that, I was like, I'm going to call up True North True Crime because that's what they do. We do do a lot of MMIWG cases. We can't be a Canadian podcast and not cover those cases. You just you can't do it. So we have covered a number of MMIWG cases. We've done the Jack family. We've done Chelsea Poorman. We've done Helen Betty. Right. What else have we done? Um, yeah, that's the thing is like we like as a Canadian podcast, we have to recognize that missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, but also missing and missing and murdered indigenous men and boys um, is an epidemic that occurs not just in Canada, though, but but it's actually a global um, situation and issue that's happening. But in Canada, if we're going to tell stories from Canada. We need to cover these cases. We need to um, help to raise awareness for these families of the missing and the murdered. Um, and so we have gone as far back as we could to trace some of the history of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And we actually settled on um, what we believe was one of the first cases was in 1971, on January 1st, 19, sorry, on January 1st, 1970, an 11-year-old Métis girl named Geraldine Satie uh, she was living in Winnipeg. 
she actually was asked by her dad to go to the store to get him some matches. Um, and so she walked to the local corner store and she was stabbed multiple times by an assailant uh, who has never been arrested. Uh, and that was 40, that's 45 years ago that that case uh, remains unsolved. Then on November 13th, 1971, Helen Betty Osborne, she was a Cree woman. She was uh, just 19 years old. And uh, she was originally from Norway House, which was a very remote area of Manitoba. And uh, she was living in the town of the Pa because she wanted to become a teacher. And one night she was out with friends and uh, she was kidnapped by four men and she was assaulted and murdered while she walked down the street. Um, and only one of those four men was ever convicted in that case. And that was 15 years after the case occurred. So, you know, we traced this back as far as we could. And those are some of the cases that we originally found. Right. And it being unresolved or only one person ever being arrested and convicted, it's going to be a theme here throughout these MMIWG cases, unfortunately. And being you're from Canada, obviously there's a large indigenous population up there. So what are the numbers up there? What does that look like to Canadians? What really brought the plight of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls to the forefront was that in 2004, Amnesty International published a paper called Stolen Sisters, a human rights response to violence and discrimination against Indigenous women in Canada. And so it was at that point that people really started to gather statistics. And I have like some statistics here that, that might be able to help sort of shape things for people. So in Canada, 1,807,000 people identify themselves as Indigenous as of 2021. So that accounts for about 5% of our country's total population. However, Indigenous women represent 10% of the total population of missing women in Canada. And now Indigenous women, by the numbers, are only 4% of the women population or the population of women in Canada, but they are 10% of the missing. So over double. Yeah. Yes. In 2014, the rate of homicide of Indigenous women was almost six times higher than non-Indigenous women. In the Prairie Province of Saskatchewan, the latest data indicates that almost 45% of people who vanished between 1940 and 2020 were Indigenous. Um, in 2020, the rate of homicide for Indigenous people was seven times higher than for non-Indigenous people. And then according to the RCMP, there are more than 1,000 Indigenous women and girls who were killed or went missing between 1980 and 2012, but the experts believe that that true number is closer to 4,000. Yeah, so those numbers are pretty awful. And it was the result of those numbers that in, in 2015, the Canadian government called a national inquiry. Um, and so that inquiry was actually launched and the um, subsequent paper was published in 2019. And this is a massive undertaking. It took two years of interviews. They interviewed 2,800 families from all across Canada. Like they went from town to village to community to town, and they interviewed the families of the missing and the murdered. And uh, 2,800 families took part in this. And it took, like I said, over two years. The 2,000-page report was published, and at the very end of it, it was like one of the most um, challenging things as a Canadian to hear. It said, and this is a direct quote, the truth is that we live in a country whose laws and institutions perpetuate violations of basic human and Indigenous rights. These violations amount to nothing less than the deliberate, often covert campaign of genocide against Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited people. Wow. 
they called it genocide and that's uh i know that's a controversial word that a lot of people don't like to use but when the numbers are so high and when there's so many unresolved or unsolved cases i don't think they're wrong there i know it's a scary word for a lot of people it's a word with a lot of baggage for a lot of people but i think it's pretty fitting in this well, I mean, it's a controversial term because when we think of genocide, we think of Rwanda, we think of one million people who were murdered over the course of 30 days. Um, but with regards to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, what it has been is it, it's been an ongoing slow burn of separating them from power, from education, from affluence, from wealth. When you begin to separate people so much from the handles of power, then they do find themselves in poverty. They find themselves needing to hitchhike to the nearest community in order to see a doctor. They find themselves doing things that other people would consider risky, but that's just a part of life if you're living in a Northern community. We still have, and I don't want to get on too much of a pulpit, but we still have several Indigenous communities in Canada that are on boil water advisories. And it's 2023, and we're one of the richest nations in the world. It was a hard pill to swallow for many people to see the word genocide there. But, you know, if you look at it in that context, um, you know, the word is fitting. But I do believe using that word helped people to stop because it was so arresting and to begin to listen. And I've heard people talk about the Highway of Tears in Canada. What is that all about? Yeah. So the Highway of Tears is actually in our province. We live in British Columbia and uh, the highway is about, I think it's like 750 kilometer stretch between Prince George and Prince Rupert. And for all the Americans that just died a little inside, that's 466 miles. Thank you for that added context. How many elephants is it? Though? <laughs> <laughs> and along that highway, the Highway 16, it actually extends past Prince George and Prince Rupert. It actually stretches throughout the country. I think it connects four provinces. But the more acute area that is referred to as uh, the Highway of Tears, is that Highway 16 piece from Prince Rupert to Prince George. And what had happened was, unfortunately, bodies began literally being found along the highway. And not only that, but missing people were often last seen along that highway. This was in the 80s when it first started getting detected. So there was like, you know, there's no lighting, there's no cell phones, there's no security along that highway for people who are hitching as a means to actually travel because of their socioeconomic situation. So in 1981, the RCMP held a conference to investigate these unsolved murders or missing persons along Highway 16. And at that time, it was simply known as the Highway Murders. But then in 2005, the British Columbia RCMP, uh, their unsolved unit created something called Project EPANA, and they looked to extend the scope of the Highway Murders Initiative. And that's when we began to hear the term Highway of Tears. Now, the exact number of people who have disappeared or been murdered along Highway 16 is disputed. The RCMP acknowledges that there have been 18 murders and disappearances along the Highway of Tears, dating back, uh, I think it's between 1969 and 2006. However, Indigenous groups argue that this number is actually misleading and that the real number exceeds 40. But if we go outside of the province of British Columbia, you'll see that as the highway extends, there are more and more and more missing and murdered people along it. There was a, a TV series here in the States called The Killing Season by Josh Zeman. And uh, we have our own sort of version of this with uh, truckers and whatnot that will murder and dump bodies along 
our highways. So it's it's similar in that aspect. Right. And a lot of people do believe that there is a serial killer or perhaps multiple serial killers operating in this area. So, I mean, there's there's lots of rumor and speculation about the Highway of Tears. But I think at the end of the day, whomever is carrying out these homicides or, you know, whatever is going on up there, I think they know that it is a great place for them to and I don't like to use the word hunt, but it is their hunting grounds, right? And it's because that there's no cell coverage. They know it's remote. They know that there's, you know, there's just not a lot of cameras up there. So they know it's a great place to get away with what they're doing. Yeah. And there have been actually two serial killers who were arrested who'd used uh, Highway 16. One is the most recent one. He's the youngest serial killer in Canadian history. His name is Cody Lejabakov. And then the other was uh, Bobby Fowler. They both were arrested and put into jail. But, um, you know, at the end of the Missing and Murder Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry that we spoke about earlier, there was 290 recommendations that were put forward. And 90 of those were for the RCMP. But some of those recommendations were really quite simple. Like, we have three huge telecommunications companies in Canada right now that make billions of dollars in profits. And that whole area still, you can't get cell reception on. Like just a simple safety mechanism. Um, Greyhound used to run a bus between some of the communities, but it became economically not viable. And so they stopped doing it. I'm not saying everybody's a hitchhiker uh, who's a victim, but there are safety things that we could put in place from this inquiry that came out four years ago now that still haven't been put in place to keep people safe. It's so simple, like just cell coverage, better lighting, CCTV cameras along that, along that. Safe transportation. Exactly. And more, more buses and ways for people to get between communities. Those are like four very simple asks that are totally doable. And unfortunately, I don't believe that they have been done as of 2023. It sounds like basic infrastructure to me that I right. would just assume. Yeah. yeah. And it is a remote, like rural area. I mean, you can, you know, we were recently, um, just in our area of the world, we were recently on a search for a 17-year-old who went missing in 2017. And we were deep into the wilderness of British Columbia. And it is, it's vast, vast, rugged terrain. So I think we've established, uh, at least given our audience uh, some numbers some statistics to work with here but uh we're going to be talking about one case tonight one in particular that you guys are very familiar with and have worked with the family on so what are we talking about tonight well we are talking about lisa marie young and she's not a highway of tears case but she is a prominent mmiwg case in uh, canada specifically on vancouver island and in the nanaimo area so Vancouver Island is located off the west coast of Canada in British Columbia. Think of Vancouver. It's about a two and a half hour ferry ride away from Vancouver. Uh, it's a large landmass about the size of Belgium with multiple cities along its coasts. And for our American listeners, it's actually larger than the state of Vermont. And the island has a total population of about 900,000 people. It's got mountains, rivers, forests, and stunning beaches. You should absolutely come visit Vancouver Island for that because it is amazing here. Yeah, that's the thing is like we wanted to just kind of give you this your listeners the scope of how big Vancouver Island is. Like people here are like, oh, an island. And they might think, you know, as one of the small islands off the coast of Seattle or something like that. But this is Vancouver Island is like as if a giant chunk of the mainland just kind of broke off. Um so it is a very big, vast place, but it's also not super populated. There's only nine hundred thousand people here, uh, you know, spread over an island mass that's larger than Vermont. So um, um, it is a very unique and beautiful place. And that's where the city of Nanaimo sits. 
Yeah, it's located mid-island on the east coast of the island. And it's so, again, it's a direct access to Vancouver by that like two and a half hour ferry or the 90 minute ferry. Yeah, depending on wh- where you're going from in Vancouver, there's two different um, harbors in Vancouver you can go from. So it's known as a hub city for being an accessible port town. And the population of Nanaimo itself is about 90,000 people. And Nanaimo has always had a bit of a rougher edge, much like most larger cities these days. But it's got a lot of biker activity and its economy is based in natural resources. Because of Nanaimo being a port city, it's a drug import town too. Um, so there was a lot of like organized crime activity that was bringing in those amounts of drugs. And But the thing is, is it's not 100% the drug activity as much as it is the um, side activity that comes out of drug use, which or drug sales, which is violence, right? There's violence, there's addiction, um, there's human trafficking, there's uh, exploitative sex work. There, there are all kinds of things that sort of occurred in Nanaimo. Now, we don't want to paint Nanaimo as a bad place because there's amazing people who live there. And it is like there are stunning areas of Nanaimo, um, but it always has had a bit of an edge. It's still a beautiful place to live, and I would absolutely live there. To everyone in Nanaimo, I'm so sorry that we like, we just made it sound like a scary place, but no, it's yeah. it's a beautiful place. It just you know there's been an edge to it for you know a long time. So uh, Lisa Marie, she was a 21 year old woman in 2002, and her parents were Joanne Martin and Don Young. And Joanne was from the Clay Coquillat First Nation, which is located on the west side of Vancouver Island near the town of Tofino. And Joanne's family, which is Lisa's mom, is quite large. Um, And Joanne's father and Lisa Marie's maternal grandfather was actually a tribal chief of that First Nation. And Lisa's father was a white man, originally from Ontario, and he came out west looking for a better life. Don and Joanne fell in love and would go on to have Lisa, as well as Lisa's two brothers, Brian and Robbie. Yeah, and this family spent a lot of time camping. Um, they uh, spent a lot of time over on one of the other islands. I think it's Laskidi Island across from them. Um, and they had like a pretty normal working class upbringing. Lisa, she was born on May 5th, 1981, and she was actually known as a pretty determined kid even then. Um, when Joanne walked her to her first day of kindergarten, Lisa Marie didn't cry. She just said, bye, mom, and like ran off. Like she was super excited to meet other kids. Um, she was also like super thoughtful. She, When she was a kid, she would open presents with like precision and care. Um, she would really take care of the wrapping paper and that kind of stuff. Um, and now as Lisa grew into a teenager, she became very protective of her younger brothers. Um, she got the family nickname Bossy Lisa. In middle school, she got really into sports and fitness. And it was at this time she got inspired at the idea of becoming a sportscaster like, or a sports journalist. Um, she also volunteered with the local parks board and uh, she was a camp counselor. And then she landed her first job um, at McDonald's. And by all accounts, she was well-liked uh, and well-respected by her colleagues and managers there. So she sounds very responsible. She sounds like she wasn't into partying, wasn't into anything that I was into when I was a teenager <laughs> in my 20s. Yeah. You okay. and me both. Um, yeah, no, she was, <laughs> by all accounts from her family, she was incredibly responsible. She was never late for anything. She was just you know, super on top of things for somebody who was in her early 20s. It was quite remarkable. Um, There was some conflict, though, in her late teens. And Graham, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the conflict was that 
there was a period of time where she wasn't getting along with her parents. And at that time, she advocated to go into care. It wasn't that there was violence in the household or anything like that. It's just that she, there was sort of this determination or this desire to be independent. And so she did spend a small period of time in foster care and living independently. And then when she came out of that, she actually moved in with some friends in the same apartment building as her parents, Don and Joanne. So they were still a very close family. It was just like, it seems like there was a small period of conflict in there in her late teens, um, but the family had clearly worked through that. Yeah, and moved past it. Um, so by that time, she was about 21 years old. She was a typical 21-year-old woman, you know, loved her friends, going out to the live music scene in Nanaimo. She loved fitness and she decided to be a vegetarian at this time. Her personality remained jovial, fun, and at times bubbly. And she was a hard worker, like we already established. She was a very responsible person and she was determined from childhood into adulthood to just be the best person she could be. And she had just turned 21 on May 5th and she was slated to start a new job at a call center. Uh, later in July. And she was also moving into a new apartment at this time as well. So this this was kind of a time with a lot of changes in Lisa's life. She was starting to get her footing as a young adult. She was getting a new apartment, getting a new job. It was a big time for her. Yeah. She was really excited to leave the fast food industry it was right. a big thing for her. And like, you know, the the idea of working in a call center and um getting trained in this new position was pretty exciting for her. And the idea of getting her own new apartment was very exciting for her as well. So things were really kind of on an upswing for Lisa Marie. In Canada, we celebrate Canada Day and it occurs on July 1st. And then our our US friends celebrate their day on July 4th, which is Independence Day. Oh, your friends. Our friends to the South. We love you guys. We're America's hat. So that's sort of like a, a big midsummer party weekend in Canada. A lot of people go camping, but people in cities go to the clubs. A lot of people do barbecues. Like There's fireworks in certain communities. So it's usually a big celebration and let some steam off kind of weekend, right? But the thing is, is for Lisa, is that she had actually planned to move that weekend. So she had asked her her mom and dad, uh, can you help me move on uh, Sunday, June 30th? And then she said, oh, but one more thing. It's my best friend Dallas's birthday on Saturday, June 29th. So I'm going to go out to the club. Um, and, you know, Joanne and Don were like, maybe don't do that because we've got to move tomorrow morning. And she was like, oh, whatever, I'll be fine kind of thing. And she actually ended up she went over to her parents' house and she had a beer that night and hung out with them. They talked about the move. And then again, before she went out around 11 o'clock, they were like, hey, maybe don't go out tonight. And she said, no, it's Dallas's birthday and I love birthdays. I want to celebrate it with him. She headed downtown. The resilience of the youth. I, I don't think I would go out the day before I would move, but yeah. No, I mean, in your 30s, things are a lot different, or your 40s. Um, so that week was a big week for her. Like Graham said, she was planning on moving a lot of things on, on Sunday, June 30th. And she was actually supposed to physically get the keys to her new place on Monday, July 1st. And then, as we mentioned, she was getting a new job at the call center. And she was actually originally scheduled to begin that job later in the month of July. But she had pushed the company to let her start earlier. She was so excited to get going. So her start date, they moved it up to July 2nd. So this was a big, busy three-day period for Lisa. So why don't you get into the timeline now? 
Sure. So at 11 p.m., Lisa Marie leaves her parents' place uh, in the same apartment building that she lived in, and she headed downtown Nanaimo. Like we said before she left, uh, you know, her parents reminded her about the move, and she said, no, it's fine. I'll be fine. So she meets up with her friend Dallas, and they go to the Jungle Cabaret, which is located on Skinner Street, uh, and they got to the club around midnight, it seems. And by all accounts, it was a fun night. It was a busy bar due to the long weekend. And then at two o'clock, the bar closes. And so everyone's sort of like forced out. You know what it's like at the at closing time of a bar. It's people milling around the front door. They're milling around the side um, parking lot that's beside the bar. And Lisa's kind of hanging out with her friend Dallas and some other friends. And they're just talking. And they had heard about a house party. So they got excited about the idea of a house party. And it was just then that a man in his mid-20s approached the group and began chatting to them. Now, they didn't know this guy, um, but he was a a white dude. He was clean cut. um, And he said, hey, can I give you guys a ride to that house party? And he had a very sweet car, especially for a man in his mid-20s. He had an older red or maroon Jaguar with square headlights. So based on the headlight description, this is believed to be a European release Jaguar XJ40, which would have been manufactured between 1986 and 1994. Now, this was a rare car like in itself, but let alone in Nanaimo in 2002, and even more rare for, again, a young man in his 20s to have. So the first party that night was in the Harewood neighborhood. And at this time, this was a rougher area of Nanaimo. And so they left that party and ended up going to another party in the Westwood Lake area. And while at the second party, Lisa mentioned that she was hungry and she was a vegetarian and her options were very limited as it was about three or four in the morning at this point. Your options are limited even if it's three or four in the afternoon. Totally, right? Exactly. And if if you imagine it's a party on Canada Day long weekend, so whatever food might be at the party is like meat-based or, uh, you know, like leftover barbecue from earlier or, you know, a half a bowl of chips sitting around or something like that. So Lisa wanted to get something to eat. And um, she knew that the there was a Subway sandwich restaurant and many vegetarians will know um, that the Subway sandwich, uh, you know, veggie sub is like your only option. She was like, hey, can someone bring me to that Subway? So the Jaguar guy or Jag guy, as he became known, he offers to drive Lisa to the Subway. And so her friend Dallas was pretty intoxicated at this point, and he just wanted to stay at the party. So it's like they had already hung out with this guy for two hours. And, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, he's a nice guy. He drove us to two parties. Of course, he will drive Lisa to the subway and then drive her right back. Lisa leaves the second party with the Jag guy. And that was the last time that she was seen. A very specific car. They have descriptions of this person she's leaving with. Should be safe. Should be. But unfortunately, about an hour later at 4.30 a.m., Dallas received a call from Lisa. And Dallas recalls this as being kind of odd. And she said that the Jag guy didn't end up taking Lisa to get food, but that he had taken her to another party. Lisa actually said the words, Dallas, I don't know what's going on. This guy won't bring me back. We're sitting in a driveway on Bowen Road and he won't bring me back. I'm bored. I'm getting pissed off. And at this point, Dallas got the feeling that Lisa was more annoyed than she was scared. But keep in mind that he was intoxicated. And it has been said that this phone call was followed up by a text message to Dallas. And text messages, again, were rare in 2002. Everybody had flip phones. You had to push the buttons a million times to send a text message. You remember those days? Yeah, T9. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and so it was usually only used when you absolutely couldn't talk or if it was an emergency. And so that text message is alleged to have stated, come get me. They won't let me leave. Yeah. The wording there has changed, right, Justin? Like we've gone from Jag guy to like from he has taken me to a place to they won't let me leave. And at that point, I think uh, you could argue she's kidnapped. Right. It is believed that the second location was on Nanaimo Lakes Road. Dallas suggested that Lisa grab a cab, but Lisa did not text Dallas back from this point on. And the final signal from Lisa's phone was traced to the Departure Bay area of Nanaimo, which is where the ferry to and from Vancouver is located. Yeah, it should be added here that the ferry would not have been running. The the last ferry leaves at 10 p.m. and starts at 6 a.m. That is a harbor location. If you are trying to get rid of anything, you know, the harbor is a great place to do that. She's at a party, a house party. No one knows where that house party is. And she's at this harbor area. So the opportunities are endless as far as taking her somewhere. Right. And it's it's kind of hard to tell exactly where she last was because it's just a it's a cell tower that's in the area of Departure Bay. So she really could have been a lot of places at this point. And this is 2002 technology too. Mm-hmm. So the next morning, Joanne and Dawn are concerned, right? Because Lisa is not there. They're supposed to help her move. Uh, they know it's the Canada Day long weekend, but she is a person of her word. And all of a sudden she is not there. And they spent the first couple of hours calling everybody who was friends with Lisa Marie. They they actually found her black book where she had like people's phone numbers and stuff written down. And from what we understand, Joanne called everybody in there. But again, they were, you know, maybe she's sleeping it off somewhere or something like that. But they didn't end up hearing from Lisa Marie. So Don and Joanne first contact the police on Monday, July 1st. But unfortunately, they're told to wait 48 hours before they can file a missing persons report. And as most of us know, this isn't true. There is no mandatory waiting period to report a missing person in Canada. So later in that on that same day on July 1st, after Lisa's parents had initially called the police, an RCMP officer did end up coming to their residence to ask for a photo of Lisa. And at this point, Don and Joanne avoided telling the police that their daughter was Indigenous, as they were afraid that it would result in the case being taken less seriously. That's really horrifying to hear. It's brutal. Yeah, and that's like, you know, the whole setup at the beginning of this episode around MMIWG cases is to highlight these moments, like these moments, whether the Joanne was so concerned that her daughter's case wouldn't be taken seriously. And not just by the RCMP. It wasn't just that. It's just the public's reaction too. And the media. Yeah, that it was like, oh, it's an Indigenous girl missing. Shrug. Terrible stereotypes come into play. And then people don't care. She was supposed to be moving and starting a new job. She had all of these things happening. I mean, it's obvious something is wrong. It's obvious she didn't just say, oh, well, I'm just going to go walk off and do something else. It's it's like your child goes missing at a store. There's something wrong. It's not that your child just ran off. And in this case, it's so obvious. She leaves with this guy and she's never heard from again. Oh, uh, yeah. So on Tuesday, after Lisa failed to show up both to picking up her new apartment keys on Monday, like we said she was supposed to do, and the first day of training at that new job on the Tuesday, Lisa's mom repeatedly tried to get into contact with the officer that had come by asking for a photo of Lisa, 
And she was eventually informed that that officer was off work until Friday, July 5th. So the matter would have to wait until then. He's on vacation or PTO time. And- exactly. And the police even said nothing suggests foul play at that point. So further persistence on Joanne's side resulted in the case being assigned to a different constable on Wednesday, July 3rd. So luckily, they didn't have to wait until the 5th. But it's interesting in the media here, in the ensuing days, on July 6th, in the Nanaimo Daily News, it was reported that no evidence has emerged to indicate to police that foul play is involved. However, police state that each passing day, their concern was growing, and they had a number of tips that they want to follow up on. And then on July 9th, the Nanaimo Daily News reported that the RCMP had five serious crime investigators working on the case, and they had received over two dozen tips. And then just four days later, after they initially reported that there was no evidence of foul play, the RCMP released a statement saying, Nanaimo RCMP now believe a 21-year-old woman who went missing 10 days ago has met with foul play. It doesn't matter if we're in Canada or the United States or Britain. It's like when you're taking a police report, I don't care if it's a missing persons report, I don't care if it's an accident. Sometimes you just need not speak and just take the report. It's like what police tell you when they arrest you. Everything you say can and will be used against you. Well, everything a police officer says can and will be hung on to. And it's just like, well, maybe if you don't know, then just take the report. Yeah. And it's so clear that the like what you just said, that the dark shadow of the early days of this investigation haunt this case to this day. These early, early mistakes um, and these weird comments about like, yeah, I'll be back on the fifth. Little comments that they hear, they stay with them for 20 years. Yeah. It's like a doctor's bedside manner when you're at a hospital. And I always say it's a bedside manner. It's how you treat the person reporting this. And sometimes it's just better to just take the report, not give any commentary or any opinion in the beginning, because that way the victim's family is going to think that you're taking it seriously. But when you make a statement, no foul play or nothing's wrong here, or wait 48 hours, or the guy's off work now, this is their daughter that's missing. And it's absolutely going to turn off the family if they think that you're not taking this as seriously as you should. Exactly. And, you know, the family at this point knew that they likely weren't going to get any help from the police. So, Joanne sent out word to the Cloquiot First Nation that they needed help. And so many relatives and friends made the three-hour drive from the west side of the island over to Nanaimo. And they actually did the first searches alone by themselves. Yeah. And actually, there was a, a, a like a radio hit, like a, a news radio hit went out on the island that, you know, there was a missing girl in Nanaimo. And strangers showed up from towns like Port Alberni and other island um, cities and towns you know, they showed up in pickup trucks. They, they were uh, like mill men and, and, and working class people that showed up to help um, this family on their searches. And we had mentioned earlier that Joanne didn't want to say that um, Lisa was First Nations, but Joanne, she asked Dawn to speak to the media if there was ever going to be photos or videos. So, because she was scared if people saw her as a First Nations woman, that they again would not care. So Joanne really drove this investigation uh, from outside of the public view, but she was absolutely um, tenacious. But she felt the need to put her white husband in front of the cameras because she felt that she wouldn't be taken seriously. And that's heart wrenching to hear. Yeah. 
And again, it goes back to what we'd said earlier, the agency and the power had been taken away from indigenous women for decades, you know? And so she was like, you know, I just want to get my daughter back. So if this is going to hinder it, then I'm going to not stand in the forefront or stand in the spotlight of this investigation. Yeah, she quietly stepped back and and really did all the work off camera while Dawn was tasked with being the family spokesperson. And she did that quite purposely. And so eventually the RCMP did do a search, but it wasn't until September 18th, which was over three months after Lisa initially vanished. So it took them three months to get an official RCMP search out. The search itself consisted of just over 20 officers and two dogs. And this was in the Dumont and Biggs Roads area. Um, And this is an area of Nanaimo kind of near Departure Bay. And it's a bunch of trails and campgrounds. So it is wilderness, like a lot of forests and whatnot. So I'm not sure what led them there, but clearly they had some tip that led them to that area. And this was the only official police search for Lisa until they finally did a second search 18 years later, just three years ago in December of 2020. So her family's been out there searching. Her family just knew that they weren't going to get the response and the support. So they are doing it all themselves. And it's obvious where Lisa Marie got her go-getter attitude because her family definitely instilled that hard work ethic and get the job done. And if you can't rely on others, you just got to do it yourself. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Yeah. And Joanne did. Like she started her own investigation into what happened that night. She obviously, we said she found the address book. She phoned all the phone numbers. And then she learned about Jag Guy. And so Joanne walked around at night in downtown Nanaimo and she spoke to everyone she could, including um, sex workers in the area. And several of the sex workers were able to identify the Jag Guy as a young, uh, a young man by the name of Christopher. William Adair, um, and that the Jag is actually his grandmother's Jaguar. So what we've learned about Christopher William Adair is that he was a preppy man in his early 20s who was from the Parksville area, which is just north of Nanaimo. His grandmother, Jerry Adair, was a prominent realtor in the area. Her husband was a former alderman and former mayor of the town of Parksville. So this was an affluent family. And although Christopher came from a wealthy family, he liked to party with some more, uh, more of a dangerous crowd. Uh, he was a, a bit of a petty criminal. In 2002, there is evidence that Chris Adair 
had a history of involvement with the justice system in British Columbia. Some of those offenses on his records include assault, fraud, and theft. And it's obvious this is the guy that she was with that night because nobody else drives that car. It took her mother to track this down, this lead. And so armed with that information, um, Joanne goes to the detachment. And then two weeks after Lisa went missing, the RCMP did pick up Christopher. Um, but they didn't pick him up at the Nanaimo detachment. They brought him to the Parksville detachment. So it was like his home turf. And Joanne was asked to come up there. What, what is Parksville? Like a, an hour away from Nanaimo? It is a 36-minute drive from Nanaimo to Parksville. It's still 40 minutes getting the mother of a missing woman to come up and, and sit down with who she believes to be a suspect in the case of her missing daughter. Joanne has to make the drive up to the Parksville detachment. And he's there in an interview room. The police had already sort of debriefed him or spoken with him, and they kind of cleared him. And so Joanne sits down and the RCMP inform her that like, hey, we've spoken to him. He's got a story. And this story has never been disclosed publicly. We don't know what Christopher Adair said to the RCMP, but they felt very strongly that he was not a suspect. Let's just pause there. He's in there. He's just done his interview. He hasn't even left the interview room. Her mother comes up and they're already telling her his story checks out when we know damn well they haven't vetted his story at all because he just finished talking to them. Right. When did they have time to check anything he was saying? They didn't have time to look into his alibi. They didn't check his car or anything like that. Like no work had been done other than he told them something. At the end of that meeting, the interviewer, the RCMP member, asked Joanne uh, to give Christopher a hug in like a no hard feelings kind of way. And at that point, Christopher muttered something to the effect of, I'm sorry, your daughter is missing. Give him a hug. This is the, the last person that was with your daughter before she disappeared. And he's completely and utterly unhelpful in this search, this situation. Like, come on. Yeah. So then uh, Christopher William Adair was released. Uh, the police did search the car, but not until it had been steam cleaned. And then shortly after, the grandmother ended up selling the Jaguar. And again, this is you know weeks, months later, right? Like this is this isn't right. a day later, so it doesn't matter if they searched his car. Joanne was told that it would be in her best interest to not put Christopher William Adair's name into the media when she did interviews. Yeah, in fact, uh, two officers from the Nanaimo detachment showed up at Joanne and Don's house and warned. Don that they would charge him with obstruction of justice if he pursued media coverage. So RCMP said that they did not want Lisa's parents interfering with the integrity of the RCMP. And Lisa's mother was also warned by the RCMP for taking photos of the Jaguar from the street at the grandmother's house of Christopher. And Don was warned by the RCMP to stop emailing Christopher's grandmother. So I think they had been kind of doing their own investigative work and the RCMP were repeatedly telling them to stop. And it's hard because I understand where they're coming from. Like they don't want interference in their investigation. But at the same time, this family has been met with nothing but what they perceived to be being failed, right? So they felt that they had to do things on their own. And I do not blame them at all for feeling that way. It's the most important thing to them. 
That's the only thing they can think about every second of the day and night. Right. And, you know, people with missing people in their lives, it's so hard to just sit idly by and trust law enforcement or the powers that be to be doing the work that you desperately want to do. I don't know that I would be able to trust other people to take things as seriously as as I'm taking them. Yeah, there's absolutely no manual to be the family member of a missing person. You know, families have to react the way that they're going to react, whether they become industrious and investigators, whether they teach themselves forensics or grid searches, or whether they literally just do nothing because they're so um, affected by the trauma of it. It's all a normal response. And there is no playbook. There are people out there who will help. There are civilian people who, who will help to guide the families through it. But it's really a learning as you go. Like, how do I speak to the media? How do I source uh, people that can give me information? What am I doing that's legal or illegal? You know, and it's it just it's such an incredibly challenging, heartbreaking thing. And and you know, after Christopher was released. He moved to the province of Saskatchewan, where he ended up having more interactions with law enforcement, including assaulting a police officer. He then moved to Japan and around the world. And in 2021, we learned that he's now living in Turkey and he is working in tourism and also in finance. What does her family end up doing? So decades went by and the investigation kind of petered out. After the release of Christopher William Adair, after the interviews of some suspects and witnesses, uh, no arrests were made in this case. And so Joanne stepped into the spotlight and she started doing a lot of media interviews and she found friendly reporters on the island who carried the case and kept Lisa as a story, kept her as a part of the conversation and mark anniversaries of her missing date. Joanne started asking Crime Stoppers if they would do a reenactment video for Lisa's disappearance. And for six years, Crime Stoppers kind of hedged on that but eventually they did make the video. And in this video, it's very bizarre because they're standing outside of the nightclub and then the stranger who they didn't name, they didn't call him Christopher Adair, it's just a stranger, shows up and offers to drive them to the party. And now this Christopher William Adair was a preppy looking dude and they portrayed him as a guy in like a tank top and a ball cap, like black tank top with a necklace. Like he looks like a street level drug dealer. He doesn't look like this preppy kid. So this video comes out and it doesn't even portray the main suspect properly. It's almost like they want to spoon feed the audience like this is the bad guy. And so we have to make him look this way when really he actually looked like a normal guy and had no chains or any of the things that they tried to make out like this stereotypical look. I don't even get it. But yeah, so family's not happy with that. Yeah, and the investigators at like before this Crime Stoppers video was made, the investigators told the family that he didn't feel the video would be helpful at the time, and so it took 7 years for that video to even get made, and then when it was, the family really felt that it was totally botched. There was a lot of concern about the choice of actors that were used to portray, I mean, especially the driver, but kind of everybody involved. And so, I mean, the Crime Stoppers video it's available on YouTube. You can absolutely watch it. It's it's kind of so bad that it's laughable. So in the last few years, there's been some major turning points with regards to media awareness and the investigation into this case. And those two major turning points occurred because of, you guessed it, podcasts. One was Case File. Uh, listeners of, of your show will know Case File. They covered Lisa Marie's story 
And they named Christopher William Adair. It was the first time his name was actually used. Um, and they named him as the man who drove her and as the man who she stated would not let her go. Um, interesting uh, is Case File ended up getting a notice from Spotify that their podcast had been pulled down for what he thought originally was a copyright infringement. But it turns out that Christopher William Adair had actually uh, sent a cease and desist to Spotify. I guess, claiming defamation or wrongful information or something like that. And uh, uh, power to case file, he uh, did not do anything different and re-uploaded the episode. Now, the second major thing, and this has been huge, is that a retired CBC reporter named Laura Palmer created a multi-episode podcast called Island Crime, Where is Lisa? And she interviewed every single person that she could and she's been able to create a lot of buzz. Like she has gone into the depths of this case and found everybody. But the one person who refuses to speak to her is Christopher William Adair. It probably doesn't behoove him to speak up. But at the same time, if he just gave any sort of statement of, well, I just dropped her off and that was the last I saw of her, it would be something. But the fact it's complete silence just makes everybody wonder, well, what did you do? You know, in the aftermath of the Where is Lisa podcast, uh, two new investigators have been put on Lisa's file. And I, I really want to highlight here that I know that we, you know, there were some digs at the RCMP throughout, you know, this episode. But um, these two new investigators, they are Constable Pinfold and Corporal Muntner. Uh, they have been amazing to work with. They have been helping all of the activists that are involved uh, and organizers who are involved with Lisa Marie's story. They have put out multiple press releases saying, if you previously gave us information on this case and you felt like your information was ignored, we are asking you to come forward again. And so they did. Like People came out of the woodwork. They told their stories because some of the people that had information were known to police or they were um, you know, on hard times at the time and stuff like that. So they felt that their voices couldn't be heard to the, the investigators, but now they were given permission to come forward again. And people really started to respond. That's super awesome because it doesn't take much. And they're the ones that drive the investigation. The families can only do so much. So it's awesome that they go back and revisit that and are trying to make it right. Even if it's a day late and a dollar short, it's something. And I'm sure the family appreciates that. A lot of relationship building has occurred between the family and the RCMP over the years. One of Lisa's uncles, Mike, is actually an RCMP member and he carved a paddle. He's an indigenous carver. Yeah, and he carved a paddle for two of the corporals. So there's been a lot of just rebuilding of relationships over the years, which is obviously incredibly necessary. It's amazing to me that the family is able to forgive. And I don't I don't know that they have totally forgiven everything, but the fact that they're even able to continue working together is amazing, especially after everything that went wrong in the early stages of the investigations. And we've participated in the Lisa Marie Young marches for justice that occur every summer in Nanaimo. And we've walked you know, shoulder to shoulder with um, Constable Pinfold and Corporal Muntner. Um, so they do participate in the marches. They are there. They are present. Um, and it's important to note here that the RCMP file for Lisa Marie Young consists of 15,000 documents, over 100 witness accounts. I've been wrong in the past, and I like being wrong about things like this, but like when so much time passes between the time of the actual crime and then the investigation, 
so much evidence, so much witness testimony, all of it is lost. Witness statements are lost. People forget, but I've been wrong and they have come back and solved a few cases, uh, especially like the Golden State Killers. And even, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, Dallas, the guy that she was out that night for his birthday, uh, he died in a pedestrian versus uh, vehicle accident on the highway just a, a number of years ago. So his testimony can't be redeveloped or it can't be respoken about. All they have is whatever was handwritten in the detachment in those early days. And he's a key, key witness that night. They can't put him up on the stand to tell a jury what he knows about that night. It's, it's sad. Exactly. And so we do know that a lot of new information has come forward. A lot of it was sourced um, because of Laura Palmer and her podcast uh, through the the newfound energy inside of the investigation and sort of this undying will of Lisa Marie Young's movement. We know that some of the new evidence that's come forward, we do know that there is a video cassette and a hair sample. We can't speak too much to that except for just rumor. And what I'm going to go through right now is a lot of rumor that is sort of pouring out right now. Uh, we know that there are three suspects. Uh, we can't name those suspects right now, uh, though their names have shown up quite a bit online. We can say that there are at least three men, and there is possibly one other person who is a woman who was involved in Lisa's abduction and unfortunately uh, now classified or thought of as a murder. Um, and some of those people are still in the community of Nanaimo, but uh, one of them has died. These people are well known to the police and have decades of ties to organized crime in the Nanaimo area. Uh, some of them have even been rumored to be friends with notorious serial killer Robert Picton. And then in 2020, the RCMP executed two search warrants on a house on Nanaimo Lakes Road. This property is where they believe that Lisa Marie last was. The owners of the house now, they actually bought the property in 2003. So that would be a year after Lisa went missing. A Czech news reporter, which Czech is kind of the island news reporter, he said that a neighbor had come forward claiming that they saw what looked like a body in a hammock on the property in 2002. Then days later, they saw digging equipment working on the property in the weeks that followed. And this is a lot of just speculation and things that people witnessed. And now these rumors are coming out. With any case that goes on for this long, for like 21 years now, there's going to be public speculation and, and rumor. But a person who has been absolutely just amazing in Lisa's case is a family friend, a childhood friend of Lisa. Her name is Cindy Hall, and she is instrumental in keeping Lisa's story in the media. She's the one who organizes the uh, Marches for Justice every year. I could get emotional because she's just such an amazing person. And when we asked Cindy what she thinks is the most plausible of the theories out there, she said, this is just my opinion. I think that I think there were dangerous people at a house party. I believe that they were going to make a snuff film. I believe they murdered her. They buried her and then moved her again. So she believes that wherever Lisa was originally buried, that she has been moved at least at least one time throughout the years. And the snuff film idea does tie in a little bit with Robert Picton's style. Like there was this era of this deep underground of snuff movie making and it's implausible as like 
you know, we like to think that that type of thing is like, oh, that can't possibly be a thing. Um, you know, like, like literally sexually assaulting and murdering somebody on camera cannot be a thing. Nobody wants their loved one to go through that or to really believe it exists. But so much evidence came out of the Picton trial that that type of behavior does exist. That type of messed up behavior is something that does happen in our world. And it's really hard to hear, you know? If there wasn't much investigation in the beginning, whoever the perpetrator was, wherever they put her, well, now there's an investigation happening. Now the heat's on. So they think, well, we need to move her now. It makes sense. Another huge thing happened in October of 2020. You guys have like Congress people um, or senators in the United States in your political sphere at the federal level, right? Uh, what we have is MPs or Member of Parliament. And so in October of 2020, Member of Parliament Paul Manley, and he was the Member of Parliament for that riding, for that Nanaimo riding, he actually told Lisa Marie Young's story in the Canadian Parliament building. And so he spoke about the failures of our system for the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and he spoke specifically about her case. He raised concerns that Lisa Marie's case was only given attention because of Laura Palmer's podcast. He highlighted that the podcast brought it to the forefront of the media's attention and to law enforcement's attention. One of the most interesting things that he did was he named Christopher William Adair in the House of Parliament. Like he named the guy, um, saying that he was able to escape, uh, that he was able to leave, that he went uh, unquestioned. And that was massive. Like that actually for our podcast, when we covered this case in episode 30, we felt very comfortable naming this person because his name has now been mentioned in like the biggest building in the land. Now, I just want to be clear that when we're saying the prime suspect, we're not saying Christopher William Adair murdered Lisa Marie Young. There were two or three or four people who murdered Lisa Marie Young. Christopher William Adair was the last person to be seen with her and was the person who drove her, in her own words, to a party on Nanaimo Lakes Road. When you're the last person to be seen with a missing person, probably a murdered person, I mean, I understand why he left the country. I understand why he lives on the other side of the globe now. And Turkey has had a um, an interesting relationship with extradition to Canada over the years, because it's technically part of the UN and Europe, but it's also they also kind of have their own thing. And I think really our only extradition stuff with Turkey has only come about in the last four or five years. And keep in mind that if there's not enough evidence if you're not going to charge him with anything and you just want to question him, you can't extradite him for questioning. He's safe where he is for now. To get the indictments, you have to go through the whole process and have something before you can extradite somebody. I think everyone has a pretty good idea what happened here. I think uh, Cindy has a pretty good idea. Yeah. And Paul Manley does too, because he went on to say again in Parliament, he brought up his concerns over the police handling of potential physical evidence. He pointed to the car. He pointed to the fact that it, it hadn't been examined by the RCMP until the owner had it steam cleaned and detailed. And then he went on to say, if this young woman had been the daughter of a judge, a mayor, or a member of the house, police would have been all over this right away. And then he also went on to state that the RCMP dismissed an urgent call from a witness who is believed to be an associate and accomplice of Lisa's killers who called to alert the young family that Lisa's body was being moved at the moment it was being moved from the original location. And Paul Manley stated that the RCMP ignored this caller due to the caller having connections to criminal activities, which is insane to me because 
This is a person who has every reason to be afraid of snitching or calling in. If this person was giving legitimate information, this person absolutely did the right thing. And just because they have criminal ties doesn't mean they're any less credible. In fact, I would say that probably makes them more credible because they might know. Did they want a a cop or a judge to call in? I mean, it's so hypocritical here. And that person has a lot to lose. If they're involved in the criminal world, going to the police with a tip is like, it's really risky for that person. So it's just crazy to me that it was ignored due to the fact that this person, you know, might have had a record. But Jag Guy had a record too, and they took him seriously. Like, come on. Jag Guy with the wealthy mom or grandma and the wealthy grandfather sitting in the Parksville police station together with a you know nice little polo shirt on or whatever. Uh, he was super credible. Um, but these people who are on the ground, um, you know, criminally involved people who know what's going on, they're not credible. Well, I think we can read between the lines and figure out why someone would be credible and why someone wouldn't be in this situation. Um, and then another informant, a former associate of the prime suspect, so we all know who that is, called the RCMP in 2006 to report details of Lisa's murder. And this person pointed to the snuff film that we've been talking about, a videotape of the crime and more, whatever that means. We're not sure what that means. What people have said about this case is that Lisa was taken to make a snuff film. They said she was drugged, sexually assaulted, and then killed apparently by accident. So this person is saying that Lisa was taken and it went a little too far. And it was an accident that she died. This is what this person is saying. There was no intention to actually go through with the whole process, but that she apparently died in the process of the crimes that were occurring. And this is Paul Manley saying this in the House of Parliament. This is him taking what he believes to be witness testimony and saying it publicly. And he also goes on to say that there are concerns by community members that the prime suspect in this case might have also been a police informant. So Paul Manley in the House of Parliament, I love this quote. This was the last quote that he said. He concluded by saying, RCMP and other police forces have not gone through the proper procedures of ensuring that these cases are investigated properly. These young Indigenous women have not had their cases taken seriously. If Lisa Marie Young had been a white woman and a daughter of a prominent business person in this community, that case would have been investigated properly. And again, this ties in with everything that we said at the beginning of this episode. So where are things at now? Well, every year, as we mentioned, there is the march uh, for Lisa Marie Young, the March for Justice in Nanaimo. And for the last two years, we have attended this march. It's an amazing event. Lisa's family comes out. A, a massive portion of the community of Nanaimo comes out. The mayor of Nanaimo comes out. Um, and it's a really nice way to like make sure the family knows that they are loved, that they are being listened to, that they are being heard. Because it's been 21 years. It's a long time for a family to go without, honestly, any answers of what has happened to their loved one. Again, politicians and MMIWG advocates, strangers, other victims, families, police officers. They're all at this event. It's a huge event. Yeah, we went this year and, um, you know, a very big part of it is that first we walk, you know, we walk together and it's quite quiet, but it's, it's people that know each other or people who don't know each other, but we're all together for the same reason. And we walk uh, down to this beautiful park in Nanaimo and there's a band shell there. 
And then there are speakers, uh, Lisa Marie's family members speak, politicians speak. The mayor announces every year and declares in Nanaimo that that day is Lisa Marie Young Day. There's musicians. And we also um, we eat Subway sandwiches. Every year, they're donated by Subway. Cindy hands out sandwiches to everybody who's sitting there in community together because eating together is a very important part of community. Um, we're sitting, we're supporting the family, and we are there. We eat sandwiches because that's what Lisa Marie wanted that night. And also we have her favorite candy, which was wine gums. So they hand out wine gums. And so we're all, it's really special. Like we all are eating there in in, in community with the family members and everybody else who shows up. It's obviously a sad event, but it's it's quite heartwarming as well to sit there and just be in quiet community with everybody and being there for the same reason. And also listen to the other families. We see other families whose cases we've covered. We see cases that we've never covered before, and we hear their family members speak from the stage. This year, there was uh, I think she was about a 16-year-old girl who got up um, and she shared that she's starting her own nonprofit to help um, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. She was 16 years old. Like It brought tears to our eyes. You know, It's just a really important and, and special day, and we're super grateful that we get invited, um, and we wouldn't have it any other way, so we make the drive down. And on the drive out, Justin, on the drive out of Nanaimo on our way home, we see Lisa Marie Young's face on a billboard as soon as we get out of the city limits. Her billboard is on the Sinamo Nation, and we see it on our way out of Nanaimo, and it's very powerful. On that billboard, it states that there is a $50,000 reward for information leading to Lisa's remains. Uh, You can contact the Nanaimo RCMP. A lot of us as audience members, we listen to these stories and we're like, okay, but how can I help? A way for you to help is to join the Facebook group Lisa Marie Young. We would also ask you to listen to the podcast, Where is Lisa? by Laura Palmer. It's a whole season on Lisa's case. And uh, they also, if you join the Lisa Marie Young group, you'll find out about searches as well as they do have an Amazon wish list because searching is very hard. People need boots and gloves and different items in order to do this searches. Um, When we did our episode on Lisa Marie Young, we spoke with Cindy Hall and she got us in touch with Carol Frank, who is Joanne's sister. Now, the reason why we couldn't speak with Joanne is unfortunately in 2017, Joanne Frank, Lisa Marie Young's mom and her advocate died without knowing what happened to her daughter. It's really inspiring to see all the people that have come together to keep this going, keep her name out there, honor the family. And the fact that there's still a billboard and there's a walk and this brings together other families who have their own missing children. I mean, it's this whole movement now. And, um, you know, it's like that 16 year old you spoke to that wants to start their own non-for-profit. I mean, podcasts are powerful, but I I think this younger generation actually is pretty motivated and, uh, want to see change. Absolutely. They've, They've seen a lot of injustice in their short lives. And I think the the younger generations are going to be incredibly powerful. No, I think that's great. And I think you guys are are awesome. I think that the thing is, is like, you know, with with these podcasts that we do is that we are able to provide that awareness and we're able to provide that digital footprint, you know, that so that when their loved one is searched um online or whatever, their name comes up and it's not like a six paragraph. A news article or uh, you know a thirty second legacy media hit. It's a forty five minutes or an hour of who they were and what happened in the aftermath, right? And we speak a lot in these podcasts, especially around missings about ambiguous loss. 
the families are living with somebody who is psychologically present, emotionally present, but physically absent. And they're not given the peace that they need in order to grieve, which is the why, you know? And, uh, you know, if somebody is unfortunate enough to die in a car accident, we grieve um, and we accept and we understand what happened. But when your loved one remains missing and stays missing for decades, it is really hard to reconcile. There's, there's the thoughts that they might come around the corner or that, you know, when we were on that search for Jordan Holling, we were out in the wilderness and he could be anywhere. And so it's very, very hard for the families. And I think that what we do with these podcasts is actually I'm not trying to say that we're, you know, saving the world or anything, but what we're doing is we're just nudging it down the, you know, the continuum just a little bit with every little episode that we do. And every time that we mention their loved one's name, we're just pushing it down the continuum, hopefully towards something that helps to bring peace um, and some answers for the families. At the very least, we, we pick up where the media leaves off. I think that's why we set out to do what we do is, you know, a lot of these stories fall out of of the headlines because, my Lord, we live in such a, a world where it's just constantly move on to the next unprecedented event, right? And so we're doing what we can to just keep these stories alive and, and in people's minds. And that's why we do what we do. And I know that's why you guys do what you do. Thank you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.